by by putting some structure around what you're giving can be into the future just get rid of all of that that energy that that's needed to be taken for figuring out what you're going to give and thinking about that i think that's where setting up an endowment or using a community foundation is a great service this episode of the CE Drive podcast is brought to you by Business Career College. Business Career College is a leading provider of financial services education, including the life insurance licensing program, the entire set of courses leading to the CFP certification, which is actually where I spend most of my time teaching and where I have met many of the participants in these podcasts. We also provide continuing education credits, live classroom and webinar instruction in support of the elder planning counselor designation and a few other odds and ends in support of folks in the financial services industry. You can find the full catalog of course offerings at www.businesscareercollege.com. Hello and welcome back to the CE Drive podcast. It's uh, Jason Watt here. In this episode, I'm going to be joined by Marshall McAllister. Marshall was actually on the show back in season one where he talked about Canada pension plan decisions. And you might recall that Marshall was generally a fan of waiting for CPP, although uh, he did recognize the nuance in there. So always appreciate that. The episode today is approved for life insurance credits in all jurisdictions, no accident and sickness credits. We'll get some in there, I promise. So no ANS credits for those in Alberta. It'll be good for an FP Canada financial planning credit and advocates or IAS credit, as well as a professional development credit from IROC. Uh, not sure yet exactly how this is going to work with MFDA when that regime comes out or if that's even going to happen now in the uh, context of the announcement that we're going to wipe out MFDA, wipe out IROC and start over. So we'll see what that looks like. And I am going to have a couple of uh, folks who are very in the know about regulation and compliance coming on the podcast fairly soon here. So we'll get to ask them about uh, that outcome. And as always, um, if you have ideas for future episodes, guests you think I should bring on, reach out to me. Uh, you can do so in the discussion forums. You can email me at uh, jason.watt at businesscareercollege.com. You can hit me up on Twitter at jasonwattbcc or on LinkedIn at uh, jasonwatt. Uh, CLU there. So lots of ways to hit me up. So in today's episode, Marshall and I cover a couple of things. He's very passionate about uh, this idea of having a, uh, a specific strategy around helping clients to donate. And it's not going to be the only time we talk about that this season. I know we're going to have at least one of their past guests come on as well. And uh, while Marshall talks about endowment funds here, uh, this Previous guest is going to come on to talk about donor advised funds. We get a nice mix that way, uh, a couple of different perspectives. I'm looking forward to uh, sort of the contrast, and I'm sure there'll be more overlap than uh, difference between those two conversations. In today's episode, uh, we're going to talk about charity a fair bit. So I thought it'd be worthwhile to spend a few minutes on the charitable contribution rules. So the way this works is if you donate up to $200 or the first $200 of donations, that's saved at the federal lowest tax rate, which would be 15%. And then the lowest tax rate for the province you're in. So I'm in Alberta, that's uh, 10%. So a combined 25% on that first $200. If you're in British Columbia, for example, that rate is 5.45%. So you'd have a combined 20.45% 
on that first $200. Once you donate over $200, the amount over $200 attracts credits at a better rate. For most taxpayers, that's going to be the 29% federal rate. And then sort of a mixed bag here, depending what province you're in, but usually it's the second or third highest tax rate for the province you're in. This sort of comes from eight or nine years ago before we had an introduction of a sort of higher set of tax rates. If we rewind eight or nine years, you'd find the top taxpayer in a lot of provinces was sub 50%. And then we had the federal government add a 4% from 29 to 33. And a lot of the provinces added sort of somewhere between one and 4% to their top tax rate. So now we have a lot of taxpayers who are in the low 50s, but they didn't update the charitable contribution rules. So a lot of the high rate charitable contribution donations are still made at something that's not quite the high tax rate. Wouldn't be unusual if you're at, say, a 54% tax rate that you might donate and have a combined federal and provincial tax savings of between 46 and 48%. Um, Alberta is a little bit weird here. Alberta actually gives a 21% tax credit. So the top rate taxpayer in Alberta is taxed at 48%, uh, but they would actually be credited at either 50 or 54%. And the reason that changes is because if you make more than about $210,000, that's where you move into the top federal rate of 33%. And then you also get credited at 33% on donations that are in that 210 plus range. It's a little bit convoluted, uh, but basically what it is, if you make less than $210,000, then it's 29% federal plus uh, somewhere around 15% provincial generally. And then if you make more than 210, then it's 33% federal plus again, somewhere around 15% provincial. So um, every province, every situation is just a little bit different for those high earners. Now, what Marshall delves into in here, he gets into the particulars of donating publicly traded securities. And this is true for both publicly traded securities and ecologically sensitive land. Of course, it'd be a lot more common to be able to donate appreciated securities. So the idea here is if you have Royal Bank shares, for example, you buy your Royal Bank shares about 15 years ago at $50 a share, and now you're disposing of them at $100, that's a $50 gain. And normally you would have a $50 capital gain, so times 50%, that's $25 taxable. You might pay somewhere around $10 tax per share in that case. When you make that donation personally, then you're going to wipe out that capital gain. So that's going to cause a 0% inclusion rate. You take that $50 gain times 0%, that's zero. Okay? So no tax to pay on that transaction. Making the donation corporately, then you have a slightly different outcome here. First off, you get a deduction when you make the donation corporately. So you just save it your corporate tax rate that way. But what you do get, because it's a 0% inclusion rate, that means you had a $50 capital gain. And on that $50 capital gain, there was a 0% inclusion rate. That means out of that capital gain, $50 of it is non-taxable. Those of you who know your capital dividend account rules will then recognize that the non-taxable portion of a capital gain creates a CDA credit. So you're not only going to get that $100 uh, deduction to the corporation for making a $100 donation, but also 
you would have a CDA credit, which would allow then the corporation to pay a $50 tax-free capital dividend to the shareholder. Of course, you always want to deal with your accountant for CDA credits. There are some things that can muddy those waters a little bit, but the basic rule there is you're going to have that CDA credit. Okay, before we get into the uh, episode, because we're now doing some video content and I have my shelf here behind me, I thought it would be interesting uh, to change things up a little bit. So we're still going to do a number, but instead of doing a color now, we're going to do an object from my shelf. So I have here uh, something that would normally sit uh, right about there on the shelf, right about there. Uh, this is a jar of sand uh, or dirt, I guess, as the case may be. And that's uh, it includes soil from every Commonwealth War Graves Commission cemetery in France, the United Kingdom, Belgium, and the Netherlands. So those four countries, um, there's a bunch of uh, Commonwealth War Graves scattered around the four of them. And uh, a couple of friends of mine worked hard to gather all of that. And I guess I'm included in that group, but a bunch of us worked hard to gather all that sand. There's a few of us that have those jars. So with that being said, um, that will be the answer to the quiz question. It will be jar of sand. All right, let's roll into the interview and uh, see what Marshall has to say about charitable donations, uh, RIFs, and a little bit on client-focused reforms. Okay, I'm here today with Marshall McAllister. Marshall is with uh, Mercer's here in Edmonton at uh, Private Wealth Management Shop. And Marshall, can you talk a little bit about who you are and what your firm does? Sure thing. We are a, um, a group of individuals that are connected in with Mercer's global business. And we, we are an investment council shop providing investment management services and financial planning services to a, a, a group of predominantly Albertans, but we have a few clients that are outside of Alberta and um, also working with offices across Canada, Toronto, Montreal, Winnipeg um, in providing our services. Perfect. And can you talk a little bit about your sort of typical client, if there is such a thing? Yeah, we we concentrate on, on clients that are successful savers. And uh, that puts us in the kind of the asset level of a million dollars and more. There's a few exceptions that we make for for high income earners that that are under that a million, but uh, our typical client would have you know much more than a million dollars. We often will deal with with the kids of, of our clients and sometimes even the parents of our of our clients. Another typical scenario or typical uh, characteristic of our clients, they tend to be University educated folks, lots of engineers, lots of architects, uh, lots of physicians, and they tend to be nice people as well. It's important, right? You want to choose clients you, you can deal with? Absolutely. Yeah, perfect. Um, and do you find they tend to have a mix of registered, non-registered assets, maybe some corporate holdings as well? Yeah, definitely. Um, Tax-free accounts, corporate assets, um, it's all over, all over the map. And I think you'd find then people who are good savers, you tend to be concerned about estate values or what to do with money that you're not going to spend on your sort of retirement plan. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. The um, just recognizing that you know the future is important and want to want to protect their uh, kind of their future path and and just yeah, hang out with people that are that are conscious of that. It's a it's a nice population to spend time with. 
Yeah, agreed, one hundred percent. You know, I feel like the same. One of the benefits of my job is I spend all of my time dealing with people that I really like dealing with. Yeah, just can't beat it. Um, so the sort of situation where you have clients that have. I don't want to say enough necessarily, because I know you still have to make sure that the retirement plan is sound, but I'm assuming that then quite often you have that estate conversation or some version of like client, you'll be okay financially. Yes. Yeah. What we've been doing in the, in the, in our practice the last few years is we've, we've actually been bringing out some of the statistics in, in Alberta and even Canada around average income and an average wealth. And this stat, these stats are available through StatsCan, and it shows income broken out at at the twenty percent intervals, and even showing annually what kind of what the top one percent of earners make. We have found that information to be really enlightening for our clients because these moms and dads are coming into our office not knowing how successful they really are, and not knowing like what level of income their earning puts them at, you know, top 5%, top 1%. And honestly, they think that, that they're just average and they're nowhere close to average. Maybe they might be average within their friend circle, but they're not average in terms of what our, what our population um, is composed of in this country. And um, I think it's really important to show people that. And it just maybe it's a reminder about how, how lucky we are and uh, a reminder around, you know, they've worked hard and they've saved, they've saved a lot. So, you know, take that into account. And I think that is going to help them make better decisions with their money uh, around giving, around saving, around spending, recognizing, you know, what other people look like in this country. And, and it's this area of giving that I, I really want to get into today. I know this is something that's uh, near and dear to your heart. And I think across your, your entire team, I think that's true from what I know of your team. Yeah. I'm interested then to hear what you've done the last couple of years in that giving area. So 2014, um, our team was having a meeting around financial planning and, and some of the goals that we have around philanthropy. And we came up with the idea that that we should start having more detailed conversations about giving with our clients. At the time, we believed that our clients, well, when one, we knew that our clients did give, um, but not, not all of them gave. And we also knew that more clients wanted to give, but just didn't have the, the plan put in place to actually make that happen. So we put together a quiet goal in our team to say, let's, let's see if we can get a million dollars given away in the next few years with our clients. And uh, I mean, there's no reward or no punishment for, for not for either making the goal or not, but just like, let's just see what happens. So what we did is we just started talking about what our clients' goals are with regards to charity and, and who they wanted to support and what it could look like. And we were really surprised at the outcome. Jason, the outcome was over, overwhelmingly positive. People started to put together a philanthropy plan and checks were, were being written. And I'm going to assume that before that meeting in 2014, you would have had a conversation about giving. Yeah. yeah. It would have been, I guess, like a checklist item on your 
estate planning checklist type of thing? Would that be fair? Yeah, that would be fair. Um, but it was never a it was never a positive conversation. It was almost a reactive conversation. Just like tell us tell us who you are, tell us where you're at, right? And um, you know, we were helping. We've been helping people, you know, donate securities to to registered charities for for a really long time now. Um, but yeah, we wanted to do more than that. We wanted to talk about foundations and endowments and and um, for clients that had that have more money than they're going to need for their life. Um, we thought that this was an important conversation to have. Really add some intentionality to it, right? This is from the firm perspective and from the client perspective, it sounds like. Um, yeah, from the client perspective. It's it. I mean, I don't think it had much to do with our firm. It's just like, you know, what do our clients really want to achieve with their, with their wealth? And um, we have some good advice to give around giving. So let's make sure that we can, we can do the work. And uh, so it started in 2014 and we've, we've been able to now, I mean, there's been multiple million dollars um, have been, have been endowed and uh, have been given to charities as one time. We think have some connection to our conversation around and, and some connection to our plan. I have no doubt. I mean, when you marry up these concepts where you show somebody that they are, let's say, better off financially than they might otherwise assume, and you add that to a very deliberate discussion around gifting, I, I can't see how it doesn't yield that outcome. Yeah, I think that people want to give and people think that, that they will give, but December comes pretty quick every year, right? And it's like, oh my goodness, we didn't give anything this year. Quick, you know, or, or there's so much energy that is taken up when you're thinking about financial planning, either investing, saving, spending, and even giving. So by, by putting some structure around what you're giving can be into the future, just get rid of all of that, that energy that that's needed to be taken for figuring out what you're going to give. And thinking about that, I think that's where setting up an endowment or using a community foundation is a great service to look for. And I think successful families are going to appreciate having that, that aspect of their financial plan. And I do want to talk about the endowment and the community foundation. I just I want to go into the timing of gifts a little bit more here. Do you find that people, like you, you said, the December deadline, so I assume you see a lot of annual gifting then. It, this is in retirement now, people who say, I can afford to gift $5,000 a year or whatever, something like that, and they will do that. Is that what you're seeing? Or you, you have more conversations about an estate gift? No, I would say the things that we see most are annual gifts to cherished treasure, uh, charities um, ongoing. And then we are seeing endowments set up, larger endowments, where an annual donation will flow out of that endowment. So can you talk about endowment? I know you have a relationship with Edmonton Community Foundation, and I know they have, I think it's still an endowment threshold at $10,000. Is that, you take advantage of that a fair bit? Yeah, so an individual can set up an account with Edmonton Community Foundation, and I believe it's $10,000 is, uh, is, is the initial, unless... I think it even be less. I think you just need to commit to ten thousand dollars within a certain time frame. So really, I think most people can use the, the community foundation model. We like the Emma Community Foundation because one, it allows us to get access to 
an endowment model without our clients having to go out and setting up a, a private foundation on their own um, and have to do the tax reporting and, and the you know other reporting that's that's needed for for these foundations. Um, yeah, we have a number of families that we've introduced to the to the community foundation, and um, I know they've been very happy uh, with having this foundation in their life. A hundred percent. I mean, I love Edmonton Community Foundation. You know, I go to events there and I donate myself and uh, Kathy Hawksworth over there, I would consider a friend. So yeah. yeah, great, great organization for sure. Now, what about other sorts of gifts? Do you have people who donate directly to a favorite charity on a sort of cash in basis? What else do you see there? Yeah, we do. We have um, families giving to uh, their churches on an annual basis um fam- number of families would tithe to to their local church we have um, individuals that give to their their universities um so we've got clients that have given to harvard um, many clients that have given to the university of alberta yeah there's a bit of a whole variety of things jason as you can imagine how do people choose where they donate to you know i think I think if, it would be pretty obvious for, for certain families where the money is going to go to in, in, in considering where their relationships are and what their, what their worldview is. But um, one of the benefits of working with a community foundation is that you don't have to figure out who your charity or, or what kind of cause you want to support this year or even to the future, because that can change um, year to year. I think that's also another point to to make in, in terms of like people want to give, but certain families just don't know who they should get behind and, and um, they'll give when they're asked, but if, if they, if, if they don't have a plan put in place yet for um, exactly what causes they want to support and uh, what sort of the initiatives that they, they can get behind. And I think doing this planning with your clients is, is a great way for them to get that so for the client who doesn't know, you, you know, you sort of present this and the client says, oh, like, that'd be great. I recognize that I can do it, but I, I'm not sure where to give. How do you help them explore what they have homework here? How, how do they uh, solve that uh, solve that puzzle? Yeah, I, you know, I'm not sure I can add a lot there, Jason. I think that's something that somebody's going to have to figure out uh, within their family, to be honest. Um, one thing we have suggested is for clients to bring in grandchildren and maybe even children into a family meeting on an annual basis. And uh, we've talked about the idea of having a family meeting where grandkids can come in and present to pup and grandma around what charity they should support with their allocation to the, the annual um, allotment from the, from the endowment. Perfect. Yeah. We, we did something, when I was the uh, proprietor at Business Career College, we did something similar. We uh, we did a vote, but we had every staff member uh, present on their favorite charity, and we that's how we chose where BCC made its donations. Yeah, that's neat. You know, I mean, it's not it's it's not obvious how grandparents can talk to grandchildren about money and their wealth, right? But you know, having a chance to have an annual meeting where everybody gets to come in and talk about you know what portion of say this million dollars or um, maybe more, maybe less can 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 be allocated. I think it's is is I think that is going to be a meeting that grandkids will never forget. Yeah, agreed. It, it you know it'll impart values. It helps to 
establish a little bit of how grandma and grandpa think about money. I think that there's all kinds of benefits to that. And I'm a big fan anytime you can get the family meeting going on in those cases. What about the carryover then? Is there any concern about, and I don't want to use the wrong word here, but I'll say impoverishing, you know, the kids and grandkids, like where you say, we're giving that money to charity. And as a result, there's going to be a smaller estate for a, or smaller gifts for the kids and grandkids. Yeah, I've never, I've never come across an instance where, where that's been an issue. Every one of our kind of generous families have, have, have given you know, a great amount, but there's still going to be um, a great estate left over for, for kids, I believe. Perfect. I'm sure there is. And, and, um, and then what about modeling it? How much do you show, you know, I've seen where um, people will model, they'll say by, by donating this much, you create this much tax benefit and you create this kind of flywheel effect. You know, you do the annual donation. It means your RIF withdrawals are taxed that's that much more. I, I know it's not direct, but that much more efficient that you can pull money out of the RIF, for example, because of the big charitable donation credit. Do people care about that modeling or is that sort of like they agree on the donation and then all that other stuff is, is like your business? Right. Well, Jason, you got to start somewhere. And where I would start is this. I would ask clients what would be a good goal for an annual donation going forward. And we can look in the rear view mirror and say, okay, well, what, what have you given in the last number of years? And, um, you know, if the number's $5,000 or $10,000, you know, just divide that by the, uh, the endowment um, disbursement allotment. And, and that, that can give you your, your kind of your target number to, to, uh, to endow. But that's just not going to last for one year. That's going to last forever. And uh, I, I would say, like, why have these funds in your taxable account where you're, you're growing your wealth, you're paying tax on the wealth, um, just carve out a chunk of your wealth, put it in an endowment, um, let those funds grow tax-free, and, um, and then just let that, that endowment spit out 3 to 4% annually forever. And then on the uh, appreciated security side, of course, you and I know the benefit of donating appreciated securities. Do do clients understand this? No, I, I, it's surprising how few moms and dads in our country recognize the value you know, of giving away securities. And there's been a number of conversations we've had with clients that have told us about their donations to charities. And then we're like, oh, you got to tell us this stuff ahead of time because we could have used some appreciated securities and, 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 and avoided a bunch of capital gains tax. So I do believe the word needs to get out continuously about this. And um, we wrote a white paper in 2011 and we've updated it. Uh, there's been another white paper written about uh, giving um, earlier this year, just kind of highlighting the benefits of, of you know, one aspect being giving away appreciated securities. And um, yeah, it's probably, probably good for other people to know this. Do you, uh, do you feel like people... Like, does the conversation stick? You explain it to a client, they understand it in that moment. A year later, do they remember that? Yeah, I think it would be mixed, Jason. I think some, some would. Um, some understand the, the, uh, the benefit of it and some need to be reminded. I think that's with everything, though, right? But with our, with our practice, we, 
we know what clients are going to be giving away money every year and we'll go through the portfolio and um, we'll cherry pick the most appreciated securities in the taxable accounts and, um, and use that as a rebalancing mechanism for our own portfolio work. So it works out really, really well. Um, and every once in a while we have some real surprises um, for larger clients. We, we do segregated portfolios where we have, literally hundreds of securities within within large cap components of the portfolio. And uh, every once in a while, you'll catch a rocket ship. And uh, this this last year, there was a, there was a meme stock um, by the name GameStop. And uh, um, our diversified model, we, we just owned so many securities. That was one of them. Um, and, uh, you know, we had we had an unbelievable rate of return. I think it was about a 3,000% rate of return on that particular security. And for that one family that was able to, we needed to, we needed to sell it anyway. So instead of selling the security, we our, our investment management team knows not to rebalance and trigger huge amounts of tax if they can avoid it. So they'll let, they'll let us know and make sure that we can kind of work with the clients um, tax accounts on these things. And that was a great security to give away. And we avoided a huge amount of tax for, uh, for doing just that. So can you talk a little bit about the mechanism there when you donate an appreciated security? Is it just a straight transfer of ownership to Charity X or how much, uh, how much work is involved on your part there? Yeah, so you have to work with a, a charity that has, a, has a, a brokerage account. And um, for us, we're going to be donating uh, private pools, mutual funds, um, and, and, and equity securities or even ETFs. And... Um, we would we would trigger the transfer on our end as a as a donation and it, and it triggers a as it triggers a sale in our tax reporting okay that's really important so it generates a capital gain and then uh, we would then follow up with tax we would follow up with reporting to the client's account and saying listen this would this particular security transferred out um, it recognizes that is a, as a capital gain, but it's not, it's, you're going to see other reporting as a, as a donation and just make sure the accountant um, records it properly. And the accountants would typically be aware of this. This is not a complicated tax measure. I don't believe so. Yeah. I think, I think it'd be pretty straightforward. Yeah. Um, what about donating from within clients, uh, corporate accounts? Yeah, definitely. That happens, uh, happens a lot. Um, it can, it can work out, even better than than donating in in a personal name. I think a question that that your listeners should ask is go to the accountants of your clients and say, listen, what what happens to the capital dividend account um, on the donation of, of appreciated securities? And if there is an expansion of the CDA, there's potentially more money that you can pull out of the corporation, bringing it into the personal name, and avoiding that um, that second generation of tax. Yeah, and when I show this in class, it's one of my favorite things to show in uh, CFP class is the zero uh, percent inclusion rate on the donation of appreciated securities. And students are, by and large, blown away by that. It's it's such a just a crazy tax benefit. Yeah. So, yeah, and nothing untoward about it. It's no. uh, it's in the act. It's very clear. Yeah, and it's that's often not understood in in the professional circles that that we walk within. Hundred percent. Yeah. So you talked about uh, using the endowment model or direct donations to charity. Did you look at donor advised funds when you were uh, exploring options for how to manage this? 
Yeah, um, I've I've read up on certain organizations in Canada that 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 have those those models, and um, to me, I think the fees are a little bit high compared to what you can get within a community foundation. So, uh, I mean, it's better than not doing anything, but uh, uh, my preference would be to use the the foundation. And then, did you look at uh, charitable remainder trusts at all? Is this something you've ever considered? Yeah, I know what they are, but I, I haven't, I haven't uh, had the need to put one in place. Um, but uh, um, yeah, my understanding it's it's a trust that it, you establish where where the, the the funds still can be used by the beneficiaries, but you know, on on I guess the termination of the trust, then all the remaining funds go go to a charity. Yeah, it's quite a bit more complicated from a tax perspective, and I've seen at least three different trust versions called charitable remainder trust. So it makes me a little nervous about the whole thing. I'm, if I were in your shoes, I wouldn't be in a rush to uh, implement. Um, I, I don't know. Any other thoughts? I, I like the endowment model as we talked about before. Um, any other thoughts here about how you work with clients who are making these uh, charitable donations? Yeah, I think just in the, I think in the, in the, I guess the big picture is, is clients want their advisors to talk about this. And um, I mean, even if they're not going to be charitable, that's fine. Just like, let's, let's, let's know that let's put it on the table and then we can move on. But for the folks that have been um, charitable, we've asked our clients a year or so after they've made their large endowments about how they feel and if, if they regret it and, and not, a single client has come back to us and said, I really regret writing that check. And I think it's something that they, they're proud of. They, um, they talk to their children and their grandchildren about it. And um, yeah, I'd recommend other advisors to do the same. Actually, on that note, um, and not to be mercenary about it, but do you find, you say they talk to their children and grandchildren, um, do you find they talk in their communities about it as well? Yes, I, I think there's, there's a number of, of, uh, of our clients that would. It wouldn't be the entire Set, set of clients that do that, but uh, um, you know, folks that are in a community that are supporting a particular charity, I think there has been conversation. I know there's been conversations about using using the endowment model, and or they were even just using securities to to donate, and and that those conversations happened within their community. It's, I guess, the reason or what I'm thinking here is, do you see referral business out of it? And again, not to be mercenary about it, but I think that it's the kind of thing where, you know, it reflects your firm's values. And that I find is often something that drives referrals. I don't know, Jason. That's a good question. I, I'm going to say I can't see any direct link to this activity and referrals. I think, you know, if we're doing a good job, and, and, you know, clients trust us and the relationship is solid. I think that's going to drive referrals. But yeah, this particular kind of niche, I haven't seen any, any direct links to introductions from, from this. Interesting. Yeah, I wasn't sure. I don't, and I know you don't do this for referrals. I'm not suggesting that at all. And I mean, especially in this model, you're moving assets away from your management, right? Like you're, you're really reducing your compensation by doing this. Yeah, totally. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the opposite of growth, right? <laughs> yeah. But I'm sure very rewarding and can't always be thinking about the, uh, the financial bottom line, right? Well, I mean, you know what? The markets, 
you know, through time, they're going to grow way faster than, than, than what our clients are going to give away, I believe on, on average. So uh, I think we're in a, we're in a pretty good business to continue to recommend philanthropy. Yeah. While, uh, well, it's not going to really sacrifice the uh, kind of the business metrics of our, of our firms. No, I'm with you. I think it pays off in all kinds of ways. That's yeah, perfect. Now, just switching gears here a little bit, we talked about this idea that a lot of your clients are really much better off financially than they assume they are. And the, uh, the sort of trend in the industry. So you find then that uh, people tend to have sort of like a RIF minimum model. They figure I've got a RIF. My minimum is 5.28 or 5.4. Is that kind of the the thinking people generally have around their rifts that just take the minimum and let everything else ride in the riff? I would say it's, it would be mixed. Um, there's a number of families that we would we would pull more money out of the, out of the riff than what the minimums would suggest. If there's if there's a locked in uh, riff, we'll, we'll we'll yank on those dollars a little harder because they're they're, they're less flexible. So we would often do kind of a max pay on 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 the locked in version and look to the the more flexible open rift to pull out monies faster in, in all in an effort to space out the the tax bill that our clients are going to face throughout their life rather than having a much larger tax bill at the end of their life um, and I think that's an important conversation to to not only have at the beginning of the relationship but but annually. Um, you know, what level of income is important to bring in for, for tax reasons every year. So you're really weighing paying some tax now versus paying a boatload of tax in retirement. You're in Alberta like I am. So you would be looking at, you know, uh, maybe 30 and a half or 36% tax rates versus 48% in the estate. That's, yeah. That's exactly it. And um, we would tell our clients, listen, look at these these registered accounts, you're, you know, you're in a partnership on these accounts. You don't own this money outright, you know, at, at, at best you own 65% of it, you know, at worst you own 52% of it. So if we can start to be strategic about how we're going to start pulling these monies out, you're going to own more of that account than if you, if you just keep it in a number and delay it for as long as possible. Do you find people respond well to that? Does it make sense or do people kind of gravitate to their RIF minimums and you have to push a little bit? No, I, people, uh, people understand it. And if, if, if they don't, we put them in a headlock. <laughs> we make sure they understand it, right? Yeah. What about the OAS situation here? So uh, like obviously there's a sweet spot if that person is well under 80,000, then OAS is irrelevant, right? If that person is over one... 130 or 150, depending when you started OAS, then it's also irrelevant. But what if you're in that sort of 80 to 130, call it range? Does it make sense to take that and suffer a little bit of OAS clawback? Or do you then say, well, let's keep the OAS intact? Yeah, that's, you know, it's going to be client specific and depending on where they are and where their income is at that particular year, because certain income will fluctuate. Um, There'll be high high income years with, with, with rebalancing or property sales that, that will, you know, kick out the OAS and, and, and certain years not. So I don't know if I can tell you that there's like a prescriptive rule around 
OAS and, and, and how we are going to react to registered account withdrawals. But um, I think, you, yeah, it needs to be dynamic as, as you're watching, watching the income. You give the lawyer's answer here. It depends. Yeah. That's it, right? So um, now what about uh, timing to the year of RIF withdrawals? Is this something you play around with? You do, like some people take it all out January 1st or yeah. some people take it out like even through the year, some people at the end of the year. How do you think about that? Well, we've got a, we have a preference for doing annual withdrawals, larger amounts, okay? And we believe that that connects to money management and, and uh, even, even kind of lifestyle spending management much better. We can, we can pull the funds out of the, the, the registered accounts, middle of January, first part of February, use those funds to contribute to tax-free savings accounts, and then just top up the taxable accounts and then spend out of the taxable account on, on a monthly basis if we need to. Do you have the, uh, the RIF money then sort of fully invested and then you pick and choose what to take out in January or do you run the RIF with uh, like a, some cash portion in it that you know is going to be your January, February withdrawal? How do you, how do you run that? Yeah, generally, it's constantly invested, small, small cash allocations. Um, those cash allocations are coming from dividend and interest payments that, you know, kind of are naturally occurring and then, um, doing a larger withdrawal for us as investment counselors, there's less trading that would then have to be done. It's better for rebalancing. We can then, we can kind of compare what we need to, to move out of the registered accounts and then look at the entire portfolio and say, okay, well, what triggers, what, what trades are going to be triggered from this withdrawal? Um, over into the other taxable accounts, either corporate. And um, instead of doing that 12 times a year, doing that once makes portfolio management more efficient. When you do the uh, TFSA, so if you're going to top up TFSA, do you do in-kind transfer or do you cash out, move cash to the TFSA and then sort of invest again in the TFSA? For, for tax-free accounts, we always move over in cash. Okay. I don't know the reason for that. Is that I'm completely ignorant on this? Well, it would, it's just more work to move over securities for in our world. From it would be easier to move over cash, um, but it's doable. If you're moving things into a tax-free account, you it is a like you, you generate a capital gain, so you can't avoid it. By so if you're doing it in, in a registered account, there's no tax to to account for. So clear it out, create the cash, move it over. Just simpler. Just simpler, yeah. Yeah, okay. I, I just didn't know. I thought it, uh, there could be an argument for each, and so it's good to hear that there's... A- yeah, well, if you're moving securities, the prices change all the time, right? So you have to get the exact number of, of... Like, if you're using pools, you can get it down to the decimal place, but if you're using securities, and you want to get exactly $6,000, that's now, like, horseshoes and hand grenades, right? Like. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's a fair point. Yeah, you want $6,000 even... And that's it. Yeah. So you would top up the TFSA first, obviously, and you know, great people are still accruing six thousand or sixty five hundred, maybe next year, or the year after, and so forth of TFSA room. Mm-hmm. And then the rest you would go to a non-reg account if you're, again, if it makes sense, right? Given that trade-off we talked about earlier, that balance act we talked about earlier, non-registered. And same thing there, you would just cash out of the R- our RIF and then move that over, run that out of the non-reg account separately. And again, can we just talk about this idea then of uh, sort of staying as invested as possible in the RIF? Sure. 
So I, I believe the evidence supports that. I know a lot of people will say, oh, I really like the, the cash wedge or portfolio insurance or some version of that. How do you think about that, uh, the cash wedge versus uh, the fully invested concept? Okay. If we're making decisions around the allocation of capital, and these decisions are tying into somebody's life measured over decades, I believe that you need to build portfolios that are going to give you the best chance of success over those decades. So if we were to look at a successful experience over the next few months or a few quarters, maybe the cash wedge is, is going to work for you. But um, over a really long time frame, I believe it's going to be a distraction. I think there's another way that you can, you can kind of tie in the behavioral side of, of needing a kind of an amount of capital that's not invested in, in, in equities or balanced type portfolios. But yeah, just owning a huge amount of cash, um, I think is is a uh, not not great. I I know uh, Wade Fow has done some research on this, and uh, his research shows that something like ninety five percent of circumstances are better off fully invested. And uh, I've always kind of thought this too that the cash wedge, and I know people use it and people like it for a variety of reasons, but it really to me it's a little bit of a uh, market timing, right? Like you're you're essentially saying, I'm predicting at any given point that the next three years is going to be worse than yeah. historical averages, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah, we've had we have some clients that have multiple portfolios with different objectives. So we've got a low risk fixed income portfolio and then a balanced portfolio, and then that low risk fixed income portfolio could be tied into five years of their of their spending, but it's not cash. So like if, you know, maybe, maybe we're kind of overlapping a little bit in terms of like what you think of the, the, the cash wedge, but um, yeah, like I think people should have a bit of cash at the bank to just do life and, and to make sure that they feel comfortable. Cause I think clients don't want to call us all the time to get money. Like that's not something that they want to do. So they want to make sure there's some liquidity there. Yeah, I think there's a better way to do safe money management and tying into what somebody's objectives would be in terms of like wanting to feel secure. If it makes sense to kind of compartmentalize a piece of their wealth to to show that we've protected three or five years of spending, then that's a good plan. But I think there's a lot of, uh, you know, a lot more of our clients don't need that. They would recognize that their balanced portfolio is, is built for performance over the next few decades and and they'll be able to spend through that money in a in a healthy way. Yeah, that's perfect. Um any other thoughts around managing the RIF? I think it's important to recognize security location. Um like what what types of securities should go in registered accounts versus versus taxable. And you know your your audience will have different opinions around should equities go in registered accounts or should fixed income go in registered accounts and uh, even types of international securities that pay different types of dividends can can be held in, in these accounts. So that's something to keep an eye on for for their clients. Like what's what's the best way to, to do it? You have a little bit of freedom though on that being a discretionary shop where I think you have a little more latitude than a, a closed shop will around uh, how you can do tax location. I, I hear this frustration quite often from people on, especially the MFDA side, where they feel like they really have to uh, asset allocate every portfolio 
the same way, you know, assuming it's built for retirement. And yeah, it gets a little bit tricky to do. And again, your clients, you're typically going to have, I would say, significant amounts or at least enough non-reg assets to make that pay off. But yeah, that's true. Yeah, for us, we we build you know, one portfolio across all of the different accounts. And as long as that the overall portfolio is within its targets, you know, where we locate these securities across all these different accounts can make a, can makes makes a really big impact on the after-tax rate of return. Now, I have to ask uh, one last set of questions here, if you don't mind, Marshall. So we're we just have seen a bunch of the documentation around client-focused reforms come out. Do you have any thoughts about CFR? Is there anything here that's going to affect the way a shop like yours operates, for example? The know your product is definitely something that's is is impacting us. For every for every position that we're holding within our portfolios, we have to have a, a basis and understanding of why we're owning it and a report built to show that we've we've done our work. That's not insignificant, and uh, we're taking that very seriously. Now you you do you said earlier you use a lot of individual securities in portfolios. I'm understanding here. It's not necessarily that you have to be able to explain why you have I don't know a, a TD and not RBC for example, but really you have to be able to show that you use these principles to build the portfolio. Would that be fair? Yeah, that would be fair. And I mean the level of diversification that we're we're instigating in our portfolios is is massive. So. If, if we are using individual securities for larger accounts, it's because we have the ability to, like we have enough capital within a taxable account that it, it, it could make sense to, to own things individually, but the, the strategy wouldn't be different than a, a client that would be, you know, in a lower level account value that doesn't have segregated work. The philosophy is the same. And I mean, you're a discretionary slash fiduciary shop. You would, you're a high touch shop already. I'm guessing that there's nothing there that's concerning. You just have like the know your product thing. I know that's going to be an issue, but the know your client stuff, I, I'm assuming you have to add a little bit, but not, uh, not overwhelming for you. Yeah. So we've, what we've been doing for, for I, I can't even remember when it started, but it's been so long. It's like, we've got an annual process where clients have to attest to their, their balance sheets and their income. And we have to go through what our expectations are of their portfolio and the risks that they're taking and, and attest to that it being correct. And we now are going to be attesting to their, their risk capacity, uh, not just their risk tolerance. So that's that's going to be an update to, to our process for next year. So from where, where I am as an investment counselor, there's not a huge change to how we how we manage our clients and manage the relationship and how we report to it. And that makes sense. I think that uh, you're going to see a lot of change in the industry, though. I had a conversation yesterday with somebody where he said, I've got 400 clients, like a sole advisor with 400 clients. And you know, I think if you're a, a solo shop, that's going to be very difficult to manage now. The, the level of work on this, the amount just to do a like a, a good, solid risk capacity assessment for your clients. Really have to have done a fair bit of work to get there. Yeah. So what do you think is going to be the outcome from, from these changes for, let's say, the smaller practice? So I can't remember who made this point. This is not something I came up with, but you know, looking at that, maybe Jason Pereira, looking at that risk capacity concept, I just don't see how you assess risk capacity without, and maybe not a full financial plan, but some 
element of a financial plan, right? Like at, at the very least, having done the projections out of something like Snap or Razor, right? Having pulled, and I don't know what software you're using in-house, but I just don't know how you can assess capacity without having done the math. And even just explaining the point of taking risk and you know what historical risks have 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 looked like what, what what are drawdowns what's the what should be expected like all of that takes time and um yeah i would i would agree with you somebody that has 400 client families is uh has their work cut out for them yeah absolutely and i'm not saying everybody has to be doing financial planning it's just that you now it feels like if you're doing investment you cfr really says you have to be doing at least some financial planning right i, I get like if you're going to just do insurance and you say, I'm just concerned about helping people with life insurance, then yeah, not everybody needs a financial plan in that regard, right? Fine. But but now there's going to be, I think, a, a clearer delineation between folks who are doing like what you're doing and folks who say, you know, I, I really want to be doing something more transactional. So yeah, I think it's going to be tough. I think that those shops are going to have to either bring on staff or cut away clients or add a great amount of efficiency or team up with a technology provider, something is going to have to change there. And it's not a lot of time to make those changes, right? Yeah. When's, when it's all going to be for, for 2022, I believe, right? As I understand it, 2022. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think it's interesting. I think there's lots there that, uh, that lots of people are going to have to grapple with. And, you know, if they're like for folks listening or watching that don't wait for your compliance department the compliance departments are figuring this out too as we go. All right. Um, well, any last minute thoughts uh, to share with us here, Marshall? Uh, nothing comes to mind right now, Jason, but uh, it's been good spending a few minutes with you here on Zoom. I, uh, it's just great to see. I feel like I, one day we'll get to see each other in person again too. This is, yeah, I think you and I are both working from home for a while yet. Yeah, that's right. All right. Well, thanks so much for sharing with us, Marshall. You've covered a ton of ground and covered some things that I think are, are just important messages here. I, you know, I'm a big fan of the charitable giving conversation. Um, the, uh, the questions around managing retirement income, it's something that I feel like a lot of people haven't thought about fully and really have a model that they kind of run with. And I think, think hearing you talk about it might trigger some thoughts in folks. And then, of course, the uh, client-focused reform, something that we can't get away from now. So. Thanks for covering all that with us today, Marshall. You're welcome, Jason. Have a great, have a great day. You too. Thanks. To obtain your CE credits for listening to this episode, you'll need the color and number in order to get through the quiz. And also you'll have to pay attention to the interview. There are five questions in there and you'll want to do well on all five. Pass grade is 60%. So the place to go to do that is bccquiz.online. That's BCC is in Business Career College. So pop over to bccquiz.online. There's a short five-question quiz there. You should be able to do it on your mobile phone once you are parked. Then you can subscribe right then. It's pretty easy to do. We're always looking for more subscribers. I think this is a super efficient way to get your CE credits. And it's pretty common for me when I tell people about the podcast for CE credits, they say that's a great idea, but I'd still like to get those numbers up. So please pop over to bccquiz.online. 
15 bucks a month will get you all the CE credits you need, including your professional responsibility credits. And we're doing two episodes a month now or one episode every two weeks. So please pop on over to bccquiz.online and subscribe. The number for today's episode is nine. The number for today's episode is nine. All right. I always love uh, chatting with Marshall. He runs a really great business and uh, he has a new hire there that I'm excited to see how that uh, works out. I think that uh, she'll be a great addition to the team. So yeah, just lots of uh, fun. Always, always learn a lot from Marshall. He can see he's really got that uh, educator's approach to things, which I appreciate. Okay. I just want to take a moment to review the uh, RIF rules. Uh, Marshall talked about RIF a little bit and we really sort of launched right into the fairly nerdy elements of the RIF, but I'll just remind everybody here. So you can RIF as early as you want. A lot of people get confused around this, but there is no minimum age at which one can RIF. A lot of people will wait as late as possible, which means they will be RIFing on December 31st of the year that they turn 71, which means then that their first RIF minimum will be calculated on January 1st of the year that they are 71 on January 1st, which really means you could, although Marshall said, no, we don't really do that here. Uh, you could wait until as late as December of that year. You'd be 72 then to take your first RIF minimum. The, no matter what though, the minimum is calculated on the balance and your age as of January 1st of the year in question. So every time you start the year with a RIF balance, there's always the RIF minimum calculation done. You have to have it pulled out by the end of that year. Now, why would somebody RIF early? There are reasons for this. The biggest one is if you need the income, but there can be tax reasons to do this as well. Notably, when you take an RRSP withdrawal, you do not get the $2,000 pension credit and an RRSP withdrawal is not subject to or not available for spousal income splitting. However, a RIF amount taken after age 65 is available for the pension income credit and for pension income splitting. So if you don't have a spouse uh, or there's no benefit to income splitting, you might just take $2,000 from your RRSP, transfer it to your RIF, take a $2,000 withdrawal, and by extension, have the pension credit available. Now, if you already have defined benefit pension income, then that's not a concern, but if you don't have any other pension income, that would be a bit of valid tax planning. The other reason that you might take your RIF early is if you're trying to uh, have a RIF minimum, because the RIF minimum does two things. When you calculate that RIF minimum, you are first off not going to have any withholding tax on that. You only have withhold mandatory. So when they have mandatory withholding tax on a RIF withdrawal in excess of your RIF minimum. So you normally have that 10, 20, 30% withholding tax on RSP withdrawals. You do have that with RIF, but only beyond your calculated minimum. And then if you happen to have a spousal RSP, you can also take your minimum without triggering any attribution concerns. Normally there's attribution on a spousal RSP or spousal RIF withdrawal, where we look back to withdrawals in the current year plus two prior years, that amount can be attributed back to the spouse. But if you RIF and only take your minimum, there's no attribution back to the spouse. That would be taxed then in the withdrawer's hands. The other um, 
potential issue here is, of course, when you're taking your RIF, you can use the youngest spouse's age. So if you're looking to keep the withdrawal small, uh, which um, Marshall kind of advised against, he said in a lot of his clients' cases, it doesn't make sense to have small withdrawals. So I should have asked him this question if they use the younger age calculation or not. Uh, but anyways, if you're looking to keep that uh, withdrawal small, you can use the younger spouse's age. Now, that means if you're taking more than that, you're going to pay withholding tax on a larger amount. And keep in mind, withholding tax is not an extra tax. It's just an advance on your tax payable. So I hope that little review of the RIF rules is uh, helpful. I think it's often good to just go back and recapture that. I would mention that with the LIF, the rules are pretty much the same, except there, depending on the province you're in, you might have, say, an age 50 or age 55 minimum age in which to make those withdrawals. Um, and you also have a maximum withdrawal with a LIF, which you don't have with a RIF. I want to just take a second to give a shout out to uh, Gunnar Peter. I know Peter was listening and uh, he connected via our old uh, military connection. So thanks a lot, Peter. Nice to hear from you. Uh, Peter specifically said uh, the information in the podcast he finds to be pragmatic, practical and usable, which is uh, great. That's what I'm shooting for. And uh, yeah, I really want advisors to be able to listen and get uh, something they can take back to their clients out of it. All right. Thank you very much. Enjoy your continued learning and we will see you again in two weeks. There are quite a few people who help out with getting these episodes to air. Joseph Tong takes care of our editing. Maria Nguyen takes care of all of our continuing education approvals. And Sushami Parmelo-Paquette, uh, Ji Wu, Lisa Hoffert, and Penny Watt, my mother, Make sure that we have people listening to the podcast through their marketing and sales efforts. Thank you so much.